Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power show in Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Scott Raven. Welcome, Scott. What up, what up? How you doing? Hi, hi. And we have a special uh, duo, poet duo, dynamic duo here. Uh, Tristan, first we'll introduce Tristan, who is a poet and educator originally from Brooklyn, New York. He's taught ESOL classes across Latin America and New York and currently works in the Office of Diversity, Inclusion, and Mount Sinai. He loves to explore the intersection of culture, nature, and identity through both academic and creative writing. Welcome, Tristan. Hey, thanks. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And on the other side, we've got uh, Rich Alexandro, a uh, poet, mental health counselor from Queens. Been writing poetry since he was eight, hosting events for over 30, uh, including a series actually called Let's Talk About Mental Health for the last two years. Uh, he's got a book of poetry, Unfazed in the Teeth of a Microscope. You can uh, find that out on Amazon. Uh, his poetry collection with Tristan is called The Language of Waves, uh, which you can actually get on Etsy. Um, his poetry often focuses on the seemingly mundane, such as a trip to the diner, eating an ice cream bar, or following the flight of a housefly. Uh, nature being a consistent inspiration for him. Uh, favorite poets including Whitman, Frost, Ross Gay, uh, and against everyone's better judgment, he's been a Mets fan since 74. Wow. Welcome <laughs> to you, Rich. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. So why don't we start the conversation off just talking a little bit about your collaborative work in the language of waves you both collaborated how what tell us a little bit about the decision to do that and and how the evolution of the of the chapbook or the of the collection yeah yeah well we're uh we're kind of happy that everything came about organically um i think that like a change in setting can really help your writing process so over the last i don't know five six years or so we've gone on a lot of hikes and we just get out of queens uh, he was originally in Brooklyn, and uh, now he's in the city. So we like to get into like natural settings. And uh, there was never any intention to publish a book, but at one point Tristan said, you know, we have enough poems for a book. Mm. Um, so it's a chapbook. It's 24 poems, uh, like 12 pairs that we kind of hope are in conversation with one another. Um, yeah, what what would you say about it? No, I think that's right. It really did come about organically. I don't think either of us thought about a book. Neither of us are particularly inclined to, you know, play the publishing game and submit and try to get things published. So, uh, yeah, we, we hike a lot. We explore a lot. We travel. And these poems are just pairs of places that we've been. Great. Now, can you talk a little, I guess, about that process while you're actually hiking? Mm. Now, are you are you talking these lines out? Are you bringing a notebook with you? Uh, is the banter poetic? Uh, how did that? How does that kind of develop? I'll go. So, uh, yeah, I think it, it. Oftentimes, we'll just start walking. One of us, a line may occur to one of us, um, and it's almost meditative where we're walking in silence. When the line occurs, some one of us will say the line out loud. The other one will follow it up, um, and we try to go back and forth, but that's not, you know, that's not a rule. Um, and by the end of the poem, and these are usually short poems, we try to remember it all and write it down. But it is very much in motion, I would say, right, during if we're hiking at least. Um, of course, some of them happen when we're, you know, we're sitting down or doing something else. But we try to let it kind of flow as a sort of, you know, magical, meditative kind of experience. Yeah, I really liked how nature was a big theme. And you mentioned again, Rich mentioned again, um, talking about like hiking, getting involved in nature. I, I believe that one of you mentioned Emerson 
as being, yeah, reading Emerson's. Tell us a little bit about that and about how, like, the writing about nature and uh, and writing about on, on nature. I think the, the essay is called On Nature, right? Or yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. So I mean, I read that in college. I, I can't, I couldn't even quote a lot of those titles anymore. But I think for me, Emerson was just. Um, it was the first time I started to like disconnect myself from society and civilization and just think mm. about how we exist in nature um, and, and sort of uh, what he you know, talks about getting to sort of the marrow of life and being like true to yourself. And I think for me, I found a lot of those values in nature mm. and I didn't find them at school. I didn't find them at work. Um, and so that's sort of where I gravitated to. I think Emerson sort of sparked me to start gravitating toward, toward the natural world. Um, I don't know if his poetry necessarily influenced me in, in any major way, but it was more just engaging with the natural world. And I think that's where my poetry comes from, just that interaction with human in in their natural habitat. Sure. So, so somewhat of his lifestyle. And then on the other hand here with Rich, you know, uh, saying Whitman was an influence, you know, also similar. I don't know if you could speak a little bit on him. I think I recently was on, on a hike myself and found the, the Whitman statue, him being heaven born in, uh, in New York. Um, and yeah. Just inspirational, just seeing, you know, that bearded fellow, uh, uh, oh, Captain, my captain, uh, chilling out there. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Whitman and kind of his uh, role for you? Sure. Um, I mean, I didn't know it at the time when I started reading Whitman, but as I got older, I realized how revolutionary he was, you know, with the long form, free verse, um, you know, that purists thought was, you know, blasphemy kind of at the time. Um, and it's cool that Emerson and uh, Whitman, you know, uh, corresponded, um, mm. you know, they were contemporaries. Uh, I think one of the things that I really latched onto as a kid, I was kind of an introvert, kind of like uh, maybe low self-esteem. And it seemed that Whitman's maybe biggest message was, I'm fucking cool, <laughs> but so are you, you know? Yeah. So, so and then, of course... He had great nature themes as well. You know, yeah, to write a whole poem about grass and, of course, Leaves of Grass is the title. Yeah, I was going to say, speaking of place and, and location, like uh, Tristan also mentioned being a cool New York poet uh, <laughs> as being one of the inspirations. So I, I'd like to hear both of you about what New York City means to you and, and, and specifically in contrast to going out, kind of leaving New York City in order to return perhaps with a gift for New Yorkers in nature, you know, kind of like, and of course, of course there's parks and in New York City, but uh, I assume you're going outside of New York City for your hikes. But uh, I yeah. assume that. But yeah, yeah, no, I mean, there's there is certainly a lot of inspiration in the city too, right? I don't mean to say there isn't, but I think for me and for Rich, we there's a lot of anxiety and distraction mm. in the city, and so when we get out, that's where we're sort of we have more clarity of mind. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think that's that's a big big part of our writing. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, Queens born and bred. I was. I've lived in Queens every year except one. My parents were missionaries, so I lived in India when I was five years old for a year. Um, yeah, Queens just feels, you know, tight. The houses are, are right next to each other. Um, it's great, you know, neighborhood-wise. Everybody knew each other on the block, and you could play a, a pickup game of, you know, wiffle ball or basketball at, at any time, you know. That was cool. But I think as I got older, like Tristan is saying, you know, it's it's just really good to get out of that setting. Uh, just as it's good to, you know, go back. You know, I live in Kew Gardens now. Um, I really enjoy it. 
So, you know, I'm a Queens guy, but love to, you know, get out, go on hikes. We always talk about, you know, we fantasize about like getting a cabin upstate or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe do like a 50-50 type thing, you know? Yeah. I'd like to also get into, um, I know Rich was, is a part of the mental health uh, field, and I'm also training to work in with mental health uh, facilities and, uh, you know, kind of doing the clinical mental health counseling degree. So I'm interested in mental health, and it's been a theme on the show. You know, we've talked a lot about, you know, one of our guests in um, The Wild Truth talked about, uh, Audrey Damola talked about how, uh, you know, the hero's journey and how, um, you know, mental issues can be uh, messages from the underworld, you know, kind of like on that kind of theme and, and how, you know, from the underworld or from the hero's journey and, you know, in regards to nature, going out to nature, going to going out to that and how it can be therapeutic, but also about the mental health industry and how what your opinion of it is and how we can kind of correct perhaps some of the some of the issues with it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, obviously, there's a wide spectrum yeah. of how people will deal with their mental health. And, you know, I run up against people who are resistant to certain types of treatment. And mm. um, I'm a mental health counselor who runs groups for outpatients. Um, so I am uh, trained not to talk. I'm not, you know, uh, supposed to push treatments. I, yeah. I have my opinions, but I... I keep them to myself. Mm. Um, and, you know, depending on what the illness is, you know, uh, certain treatments, you know, are, are advisable, I think, mm. and, and certain aren't. I haven't seen too many people, here's my opinion, I haven't seen too many people with a serious mental illness um, be able to function, and function is a kind of a loaded word, but um, without some kind of treatment. Mm. you know yeah they have to address the the um the symptoms and, and that has to be corrected and addressed yeah yeah now, now when both of you are writing do you, do you have an audience in mind um while you're creating is there someone that you that you hope that your poems are going to reach you write it for yourself a little bit uh can tie into you know mental health but but you know who who might you be speaking to do you keep that in mind as you're writing yeah, I, I certainly write for myself first and foremost, and it is a sort of <clears throat> treatment to my own mental health. Mm. Um, I don't suffer from any diagnosed issues, but um, I think anxiety and just stress are, are huge in my own life. So mm. I, yeah, first and foremost, I'm writing for myself. And I do think that uh, our poetry, if it has an audience or where it resonates most, is probably people who do suffer from those same issues. Because I think a lot of what we write is 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 meditative. It's easy to absorb, um, and it's it's mundane. And and I think that that is um, accessible to a wide audience, but especially people who may not want to engage with something more academic or complex. Yeah, and I think, uh, and I'm sure you guys as writers can relate. Like, um, I think there's a certain leap of faith that's involved. Where, uh, so I agree with Tristan that I write for myself but as you write from you know your human condition then you know other people like we write about going to a diner you know hiking um you know we're not talking about you know being astronauts or something like that it's pretty accessible stuff yeah and talking a little bit about um you know when you uh one of the painful questions that rich was answering is about you know moving from solitude to community so writing solitude writing for yourself and going to community, 
Um, so when you share your work, when you're going to open mics, when you're going to these kinds of things, like how that plays out and how, you know, kind of, I noticed in the, in the collection, there was some like typographical stuff. There was some stuff that kind of translates visually on the page. So like when you're reciting it, how do you navigate that? And how do you navigate generally just, uh, you know, performance style, style as opposed to writing for the page? Yeah. What do you think about that? Um, it's a, it's kind of a constant conversation that I have with a lot of friends, you know, page versus stage. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, th- I think a lot of the stuff in this book <clears throat> is probably more page poetry. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then it's kind of like uh, I write stuff that's more performative. Sometimes I write rap type stuff. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's an interesting conversation to have with people. And I think this people that are trying to migrate sometimes, I consider myself a page poet. Now I want to do more stage stuff or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another thing I think where like when you perform, you can't be wondering, oh, who am I going to reach? You know, like mm-hmm. who's who's really going to lock into this? You, mm-hmm. uh, you just kind of have to do your thing, I think. Um, and then later on, like you do little things where maybe you punch it up or whatever. Um, and becomes more performative. You become, you know, more animated with your body. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, you mentioned uh, as one of your biggest failures about the Apollo stage. If you tell that story about <laughs> going to the Apollo theater, that sure. was really, like if there's a little more to that. That you know, you and your brother were performing there, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I've loved rap ever since you know it first hit the radio in '79. Um, my brother and I had a group called Brotherly Love, ill-fated rap group, and uh, we auditioned for the Apollo. I think it was 1987. Yes. Um, Sinbad hosting then? Who was? Who was uh, oh no, it wasn't. Not, the, not amateur night. They didn't. Just, no, they didn't have. Uh, this was strictly rap. It wasn't televised. Okay. I wish it was. It right. would have been fun to have. But um, anyway, the host that night was a guy who was really rabidly like holding on. And I understand now, now that I've gotten older, you know, sure. he, he was like, uh, the white man stole jazz, the white man stole rock and roll. Mm-hmm. We can't let the white man steal rap. Um, so he was saying this, we might've been like the eighth one coming up on the program. So by the time we got out on stage, he had really hyped them up against us. And it was just like a wall of booze that I'd never heard before. <laughs> and we could barely hear our music. So I had a verse. My brother had a verse. And then I was supposed to have a verse after that. But I got my verse in. My brother got about half of his verse in. And then they shut off our music. And we were unceremoniously ushered off stage. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was a like, wall of booze. That's like the antithesis of a language of waves. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a, Everybody putting their hands up. Um, can uh, can Tristan, you talk maybe a little a performance experience you've had and how something maybe differs from you know when you're on the page and and that experience when you are uh, engaged with an audience? Yeah, I consider myself very much a poet for the page. Um, I'm I'm more interested in the craft and the in the reading and sort of the silence that one has with the page when reading. Um, I have there was I did go through a phase probably with Rich, of going to a lot of open mics and reading my work. And some of it was received well. Some of it was more sort of maybe it rhymed or it came off better on the stage. But a lot of what I was most passionate about, my what I thought was my best work, 
didn't really get the applauses that I would... It didn't get a wall of booze, but it didn't get the sort of applauses that I was hoping for. And I realized it's because I'm not that reader. I'm not a spoken word artist. I don't get up and perform. I get up and just read the poem. And I think... Sorry, I think at a lot of open mics nowadays... Um, there's almost too much performance, right? Where there's there's sometimes very little craft in the actual work, um, and it's just how well can you perform this? You know, mm. what what uh, uh, reaction can you get out of the audience? How much applause can you get? And um, so that kind of turned me away. Um, there's still certainly great, you know, open mic features, but um, that kind of turned me away from performing in general. Um, I did also just worth mentioning. I did have a hip hop group uh, twenty years after Rich. Um, and uh, we did a little performing, never on the Apollo stage, but uh, I don't know, something we can get into later. Well, we had Brotherly Love, and then what was your, what was uh, your cruise? Third Rail. Third Rail, Third all rail. right, yeah, all yeah. right, yeah. Shout out to Lewis if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, all those those budding hip-hop groups, and, uh, you know, somewhere there's a there's a like sea of, of mixtapes floating <laughs> around that, you know, I mean, if, you can, if we could listen to those, um, <laughs> right. So, all right. So, um, I always like to ask poets, you know, why do you feel um, poetry, spoken word poetry, maybe has not achieved the same, I guess, mainstream uh, success as a stand-up comedy or some of these other art forms, or does it want to? Uh, but why do you feel like this this art form has not kind of, um, you know, become so widespread that you're seeing it on every television show, you're seeing it in uh, in movies more often, and it's it's growing. But mm. I don't know if you had any any thoughts on the art form uh, in in general. Yeah. Um, well, I always argue that rap is poetry mm -hmm. and it is spoken word, mm. but of course, you're talking about you know words that are buttressed with you know production. Um, so not what you're, you know, you'd normally think of as, as spoken word. Yeah. Um, and maybe that has something to do with where we're at now in 2021, where people want like bells and whistles and, um, attention spans are, are shortening. Um, so I think that's it. I, I think poets appreciate poets. Um, right. It's mm -hmm. it's a small community, but it's a strong community, and I, I think it's a it's a great community, and and that's one of the reasons why I, I really dig it, and you know I continue to go to events. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I always reflect on how I was like the eight year old kid, just like writing poetry because my mom wrote poetry, and like not even showing it to her, and then eventually it became like I'm uh, now I'm a part of a couple of art communities, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. cool. right. I think with Tristan's, he was talking a little bit about the Western worldview and nature and philosophy and how like that can be the Western worldview can be kind of detrimental. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but I feel like that really speaks to me about what uh, the problem is, is that the philosophically we seem to have got to a point where we're like very commercial capitalistic and we're like, you know, major about what, what can we, what can we market, you know, rather mm. than being meditative or thoughtful, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel that's sort of the tip of the iceberg. I, I think I what I kind of study myself or sort of the roots of that. Like, where did how did we get to that place? Yeah. Um, and so, kind of, I'm very interested in philosophy from the Enlightenment to to now, and how that has sort of taken us to a state of intensive industrialized capitalism, where 
like you said, things are, our life is very much, it very much revolves around what is marketed to us and what we mm. market to others, mm. whether that's our creative work or, or products. And um, I think it's very hard. Our psyches have kind of become obsessed with that and neurotic to an extent. And it's very hard to, to step out of that. Mm. Um, I think, again, getting into nature and experiencing that is, is one small step right out of out of that world um but you know as someone who has done a lot of bouncing back and forth between those two worlds mm. someone who grew up in in the center of you know world capitalism and who has traveled quite a bit um i think it is very possible to sort of see outside of that mm. and, and take steps to do that um but a lot of us um and myself included sort of we succumb to to the whatever you want to call it pleasures or the the laziness that um our our lifestyle our western worldview has created for us yeah that it seems like the establishment if you will kind of has a deep dis- distrust of free thinkers you know of like mm. of and poets being among them you know for example like in the in the um islamic traditional islamic faith you know they, they're like i think muhammad prophet muhammad was like you know poets are liars we shouldn't trust them and that was a whole vein in that culture, but also I think it kind of sprays itself out in Western culture in general, where like free thinkers are considered like you know dangerous, mm. if you will. Yeah, that, yeah. If, if you're going on and creating source, reaching into source rather than reaching into what their pre-planned talking points are, you know, mm-hmm. you're not just touching into the superficial, you know, paying homage to the establishment. You're actually going straight to source, and you're going mm-hmm. into the deep, deep waters there. Yeah, yeah, I think the fact there that reminds me of someone was saying how we don't really have the language to talk about a lot mm. of these these things, and so we mm. we revert back to this language that is founded on the ways of thinking that are detrimental. Yeah. yeah, and so if you don't fit into that sort of way of speaking about anything, yeah, as a free thinker, as an artist, you are sort of you know marginalized in some sense. Yeah, it's yeah. being dangerous, or and also it's not always for everyone. Not everyone can can handle the deep waters, so right. So it's it's got to be dang, it's can be dangerous. I think the who is it that said uh, uh, mystic? Uh, no, Joseph Campbell, I think, or was it mm. um, who said uh, a mystic swims in the same waters that a psychotic drowns in? Mm. So it's like the same waters, but the point is the mystic is swimming in it as opposed to being overwhelmed or feeling you know detriment to the detriment of their psyche. Yeah, right. right. So I want to get back to that your collaborators that you're working yeah. together too, and then piggybacking off what he's kind of saying, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine you're always agreeing. Uh, there could possibly be maybe some opposing views that you that you do have. How do you how do you kind of work that out in a, in a poem, or or do you kind of see the world pretty similarly? Um, and and the process is kind of oh, I like that, I like that. But is there a negotiation ever? Is there kind of any I don't know friction or kind of debate? while there's something being created. I think it's very rare that, uh, and I think that's why for several years now, we just like send each other our stuff or if we're doing something live, mm. um, we we know each other so well. And again, it's a balance, right? You don't want to just have like the same poet think or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. But I think usually when we uh, correspond and one person says, ah, you know, the second stanza is not too strong. Mm. The other one, the other guy's like, yeah, you know, you're <laughs> right, right. <We'll laughs> you know? I was, and you were almost thinking that 
to begin with. Mm. And uh, so we kind of keep each other honest. And um, I think in a good way, like, you know, you, I don't know if you feel the same way, but sometimes, like, I think you might have said at one point, we're becoming the same poet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if you want to say something about that. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it does feel like that, especially if we're, we're both writing a nature poem. A lot of times we're, we'll read the poems after we finish separate poems and we're, we ended up writing about the same tree or the same topic or something. It's, there is a strange connection. Um, and it's funny to have that with someone 20 years apart from you, uh, at rich and I are both or exactly 20 years apart. And, uh, so it's just, it's something, like I said, very organic, right. That I think has happened. Could you, could you each share maybe what one of the other person's strengths is as a writer? Maybe like, Maybe something that you admire about their style. What do you or like about, about me? <laughs> <laughs> I think I like um, the way Tristan strips things down, you know, uh, has like an economy of words. Mm. You know, that that's always very important to me. And I always admire poets that can do that. You know, when you kind of go over it line by line and you say, this is really bare bones. There's no fat on the bones here. You know, he just mm. gets right to it. Yeah. Mm. I am good at that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm being I, yeah, I think I've always admired Rich's cadence uh, when he's reading poetry, but also when he's writing. It's just very, for me, it's very calm to hear him and read his lines. Mm-hmm. And I know he pays attention to that and how many syllables are in each line and how it flows. And that comes through uh, for me big time. Great. So, yeah, we're almost at the halfway point. I'd love you to maybe intro uh, a piece that um, kind of you're thinking of, of sharing today and uh, and then lay, lay it on us. Sure. So we thought we could kick it off with um, uh, a pair of poems. Um, and so just to reiterate, these are poems that were written in the same place at the same time. Um, this one is not so much a nature poem. This was written in a diner. I guess I'll read mine first. Tinies in Riverdale. Diner small talk is perfect. The waitress is an expert in things she does not know. The climate offers comfort. You see, 60 tomorrow, then snow again Tuesday. That's to be expected, Rich replies. She doesn't seem to notice we are writing, Rich and I, in the silence of a holiday weekend. On the table, chicken orzo, tea, a passing whiff of whiskey interrupted by a Packers touchdown. Oh, it's snowing there already. You see the snow? We're in the Bronx, not Wisconsin, but this waitress could be from anywhere. She's sickly and sweet and might have been a mother. I say might have because she has visibly given up on something as large as a child, disconnected. Green Bay, yeah, that's Washington State, right? We sip and scribble and feel like unattended children as she steps out, short sleeves in the chill, not for a cigarette, but for something that will kill her. Just as slow. When she returns, clinking, she has missed an apple turnover, interception, nothing she didn't already know. Uh, same diner, same waitress. It's called uh, The Waitress is Getting Along with Everybody. The waitress is getting along with everybody. It seems she has set the rhythm of the diner, and you don't care if she rushes or not. She moves like she talks, not slow, not fast, about the weather, about the football game, about the weather at the football game. She announces that she's going to the deli, 
which puts slow smiles on our faces. The only waitress leaves us to write our poetry. I like to forget what year it is, and this diner is good for that. What did she get from the deli? Her clinking bag tells us that she might not have gone to the deli. My friend thinks she's drunk. We don't begrudge her at all. I wonder how many hours she's done, if the tips were good today. She sighs like a train coming to a slow stop. Now my boy states, she's drunk. He smelled the whiskey. First impressions can be so deceiving. Second and third impressions are so much sadder. There's a Wizard of Oz movie poster facing me as I write this. Margaret Hamilton points a green finger at me. The waitress asks if we need hot water for more tea. We don't. We don't need anything, really. Wow. Oh, nice. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It's just it's so much is coming to mind. Just the idea of, yeah, the, the collaborative in a page type of project. You know, it's got like a Rashomon type quality of multiple perspectives on kind of the same same event. Yeah. What struck me a lot, too, was Tristan was using the we like a speaker where it is like the we. So it's like a shared. Mm. And then you have kind of like the observer and then the, and then one is a observer, one is a scribe. And, you know, you both might be taking into account kind of different things at, at different different points. Uh, but I also and then I loved kind of, you know you spoke with like affection towards him, just, just, you know, friendly kind of my boy and just, you know, that, that type of relationship uh, also that makes him feel inclusive within, within the poem. But yeah, so many, so many ways you can kind of go with that. Thank uh, you. With, Thank with, you. With yeah. Back to back. Yeah. I was also struck with the Rashomon like energy of like seeing things in different perspectives and, and being able to accept and, and yes, and to the perspective of each other, so you're able to, you know, with the we and also with the you, the uh, you don't care if she rushes or not. Like it was like it was interesting how, you know, you kind of uh, are able to bring in new perspectives and new uh, kind of points of view into the poem and fuse it into the poem. So that then you have like multiple. It's not just, you know, one person, but it's also it kind of gets into that uh, idea of the connect interconnectness, interdependence of all things. Yeah, it kind of makes me think of like like when two people are in an event does one have to be the observer and one kind of be like the participant and, you know, mm -hmm. you know, to have kind of that one person's kind of, you know, taking inventory of a situation. Yeah. And another person is an active participant engaging and that can switch back and forth. Yeah. Um, but does that, does one of you take one of those roles more often than other, or you're both kind of alternating within? Yeah. I don't think we ever think about the role we're taking. Right. Um, we just write, um, that does sound like an interesting exercise though, for yeah. some, you know, maybe having one person do that and one person observe. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think in terms of that one poem, it was very, we just sit down if sometimes we don't even write, right. Sometimes we just sit down at a diner and eat, <laughs> right. but, uh, this particular diner, something sort of triggered something in both of us to take out the notebook and yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah it's very this, common for us to be like, you know, there's a poem here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sometimes, and we like to try to find them in diners. Then we started going to churches, just randomly, yeah. and and we'll be like, you know, there's a poem here. Um, but we just like places with character, like the big cathedral-like churches. There's no poems in there, like the, the smaller ones <laughs> the with like the really old yeah, lady yeah, saying yeah. the rosary. There's poems in there. That's <laughs> funny. Poems in there. I, I love it. Um, yeah. You ever heard of? There's this. 
book called Exercises in Style, too. I mean, it's, mm. uh, it's Raymond Quinoa. It was French initially, but it's 99 retellings of the same story. So it's just, mm. you know, different, the, the exact same moment, but just uh, one is in a sonnet form, one is in, uh, you know, pig Latin, uh, one is doublespeak and stuff like that, which I think, you know, is kind of cool to this being being one of them or, or yeah, just having a series of events through two perspectives. Is, is That's really exactly what we're going for. Right? Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, it seems interesting. It's like on one level, there's the form of the poem and like how it manifests in the, the, the um, craft. And then on the other level, there's like the point of views, the perspectives and the, and what do you bring to the table as far as like, um, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, point of view or perspective and the philosophical underpinnings of it. And I guess we kind of, we've kind of been teasing those things out over the course of this conversation, you know, teasing out the perspectives, the philosophies that underline and all this kind of thing. And also by craft, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, spoken versus performance versus page, all this kind of thing and how they kind of blend together. Um, thinking about uh, your inspirations as well, you talked a little bit about women and and and, and um, Emerson. Emerson. Um, so going a little deeper into that and how like you bring it all together and how your opinions about like form and function. Um, so like you know what we're talking about how the Rashomon like elements of it maybe focusing on like how and this kind of thing like just talking a little bit more about you know form and function and how you kind of blend the two together yeah in yeah. this dialogue and influences yeah. I'd say outside of poetry influences yeah. as well too yeah so you're talking about hip hop for example both of you had influence of hip hop so how you, it's like a like a major like soup getting you know like, I don't know what metaphor you'd use but you melt blend, blend, blending pot mm. of like many different influences you're kind of finding your own voice within that going deep to find your own source within that yeah what do you think about that I can. I think for me, yeah, it, it took me quite a while to find my own voice, if I even have yeah. Um, yet. But I think, yeah, hip hop for me, like I grew up just everything was hip hop, mm. and uh, so I, you know, wrote a lot of rhymes and stuff. And then when I started to leave that behind and get into poetry, I was still writing poetry that either rhymed or that had some sort of kind of gritty, hard aspect to it mm. that resembled hip hop. Partly because that was like my voice or that I thought was my voice, uh, that my identity was very much tied up in that. And so it took me a long time to sort of mature out of that. I think some at some point in my mid-20s, I just absorbed enough good poetry or good writing in general from other sources. I just got into reading a lot of weird novels and stuff. And it kind of just opened me up to different ways of writing. Um, Newt Hampson, I think I mentioned to you, was one of my favorite authors that that uh just had a certain way of of writing what he was thinking uh rather than crafting it and i think that um that connected with me big time was there a specific pe uh, book of, of his or uh, yeah, growth of the soil uh was sort of one of his most famous and my my favorite and that, that was just um it was a it's a book about this guy in in norway who uh and this is in like the 90, early 19th century um, who just kind of wanders around, wanders upon a plot of land and just starts building a cabin, starts a life for himself. Uh, a woman wanders that way. They, they, you know, they start a family, then other people. It's sort of just the story of starting a society from scratch in the middle of, of the world. And it, it, for me, very much felt like the first man, uh, you know what I mean, to, 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 to live. Um, that, you know, that's, that's its own thing. That doesn't necessarily influence the poetry, but I think that just uh, reading really um, different things than I had read in school, than I had, you know, than I had 
that I had never incorporated into my own thinking or my own voice. I think uh, when I started to expand um, that, that helped me write better poetry. Yeah, one thing that comes up for me about society and about fast-forwarding from one man to a whole world or a whole uh, diversity of worlds. So you work for the Office of Diversity Inclusion, I believe, Mm -hmm. and you mentioned a little bit about diversity inclusion, and and that's something that has become buzzwords now. It's like everyone wants to talk about diversity and inclusion Mm -hmm, and all this kind of thing. But how do we break it down to like... um, you know, what does that really mean? And, and how do we, and, you know, I understand the systemic uh, oppression and systemic, uh, you know, the critical race theory has become a big thing now. You know, kind of people are, like to talk about it without really diving into it. So talking a little bit about that and how that kind of influences your worldview. Um, what, what do you think about, um, what do you think about like systemic oppression? And how can we deal with it or, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think I've always just naturally been very concerned with equality and values of goodness and mm-hmm. i think there's something to that even though a lot of people would argue otherwise um i think that there is something real there and so i i was i always just have gravitated gravitated towards work that worked to serve others mm. in some sense whether it was teaching which i did before this or, or now in diversity and inclusion um so for me that's at the you know fundamentally that's what it's about just creating equality among all humans and sort of building connections and fostering Mm. um inclusive communities more specifically like you know um it's it's where i work it's creating a a medical school and a medical community in the u.s that is more um inclusive of um underrepresented groups uh Mm. that have not had the same resources to get into medicine or, or other stem fields so I mean, I have a lot to say about the sort of systemic aspect about yeah. it, but I feel like I think that's sort of the root of it and my my own interest in it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if Rich, if, if that triggers anything for you or. I think that we both uh, work for populations that may have been marginalized. Mm. Um, I myself have bipolar, so I kind of have skin in the game, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as, as far as, uh, I'm also thinking about how I was involved with Occupy Wall Street, uh, I've been involved with Black Lives Matter mm. and, um, at some point it, it became ev- evident just to me personally that I, I can get more done, you know, like at my job interpersonally, right? I mm. can make more of a dis- difference working with, uh, the outpatients that I do. And Tristan can get more done probably at his job uh, than we would if we did attended like a hundred marches or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah. all of it is great, and I have had debates, you know, with people who say like, "What what are you getting done with a march or a rally mm. kind of thing?" You know, um, yeah. But everything kind of moves the needle, and you know, it was good to see uh, Derek Chauvin. You know, was given time for his crime. Mm. Um, so I don't think that happens, you know, five, 10 years ago. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it, it so, you know, incremental that uh, sometimes people get cynical about it. But, you know, things are changing, not as fast yeah. as we'd like, but yeah. still changing. Right. Now, have either of you ever felt excluded from, I guess, some community within, well, within poetry or, or felt? I mean, I know you mentioned kind of hip hop too. Did Now, did you ever feel excluded from that or you kind of, felt all right it wasn't speaking as much to my experience so i kind of uh you know 
found other routes with which connected to me more. Well, yeah, I mean, with hip hop, certainly I felt excluded to the extent that I was a, a skinny white kid rapping about, you know, selling drugs that I wasn't selling. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, there is a bit of that, but um, I don't know. That was, I, I guess I, that, I didn't take that to heart so, so much, you know? You're um, finding your voice. You're, you're kind of right, finding your voice. Right. But, um, but had you sold drugs or whatever, would yeah. you have maintained within the lane of hip hop? I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, or like had it spoke to your, mm. would you have felt comfortable within that community? Yeah. I mean, I think I would have, I, I think, yeah. I mean, I, if, if there was a point in my, you know, twenties or, or in college where there was an opportunity to sort of take hip hop to another level and, 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 you know, I would have immersed myself in that community. Um, I think <laughs> at, at the same time, I don't even know looking back now how, how much of a fad it was for me, you know, or how much I was just trying to emulate some, some other image that I wanted to be. Right. Um, it was just confusing. I think it's confusing. It, it, yeah. You know, it's confusing being a white kid growing up in Brooklyn, surrounded by a hip hop community that, you know, is, is sort of accepting of you, but also understands that you're not a part of it. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Some, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by the white rapper, you know, yeah. paradigm too, though. And, and those that do succeed and those that have had, and, yeah. and above all, you know, I believe they, they need to be good at a great at, Hip hop, yes. you know, and truthful, you know. And, it could have, I could have just that. not been good enough. Right, that I'm not, very and much not, not what I'm saying, but, but yeah. right, yeah. right, but like that's that. It, there is an element of yeah, yeah, yeah. You just have to be the top of the top of the top, you know. That that yeah. people aren't even you know seeing that you are that skinny white boy. And I fell into that, you know, so long. I mean, I was part of a group for so long where where I was you know, either the white dude, you know, there was a mixed guy, an uh-huh. African American guy, and me. You know, I was kind of like the white dude of the group until I found my own voice, but I stayed the lane and and kind of like, all right, then you can view, you're viewed for your poetry, for what you create, as opposed to just, you know, you know, your color. And, and through that, you have people from different backgrounds that are relating to you that are, you know, whether they are a uh, rapper, whether they are, uh, mm-hmm. you know, an African-American. And I imagine you're doing that at the diversity and inclusion. You're able to connect with these people mm-hmm. by sharing some of your experiences, yeah. maybe not through music, but now through kind of your poetry and through speaking with them and talking with them. Yeah. I think you said it better than I could have. I think, yeah, to whatever extent hip hop and my other, you know, influences had an influence on me, they certainly do play out now in, in my work with, right. within multicultural settings. Yeah. And also, Rich, I think you were mentioning in your pre-interview stuff about how growing up and schooling and how, you know, the, the prioritization of not going to, you know, going to inclusive schooling, diverse schooling. So you tell us a little bit about how your mother was advocating for that and, and a little bit of the story about your perspective as a child, kind of, you know, trying to, whether or not you were, and how you felt about, you know, going to either, you know, now nowadays in schooling, they're like, you know, kind of trying to integrate schooling and there's a lot of back and forth conversation around that and how, and your perspectives on education and the, the molding years. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, my mom kind of went to war with my old school Italian grandparents. Um, you were just mentioning lane with the old school Italian mm-hmm. grandparents. There's a lane and you don't divert at all. Um, so they really wanted us to go to like the all white Catholic school. Uh, and my mom said, no, they're going to get, you know, uh, closer to the real Queens experience and they're going to go to public school. Uh, so we did for elementary and middle school. And I happened to be in middle school when rap hit, you know? So you just, 
you know, as I get older, I, you realize how seminal something like that is. The, the fight that my mom had with my grandparents and, and they were daunting figures, you know, I don't think my dad didn't, you know, go to war with his parents. My mom did. Mm. Um, so without that, I mean, all kinds of things I think don't happen. Mm. Um, yeah. My sister down the road marries a black guy. Would, would that have happened? I don't think so. You know, mm. uh, we don't, my brother and I don't, don't uh, perform at the Apollo. And uh, so my brother becomes a comedian. I become somebody who's more comfortable on stage because I don't think you can get an experience worse than that, you know, getting yeah. booed off stage at the Apollo. Um, and, you know, now my brother's, he just did Vegas with Jim Gaffigan. He's, yeah. you know, he's like a made man comedically. Yeah. Um, and th- that was really the springboard, you know, sending us to public school. Mm. Yeah, really. And also, I think the, the lesson there is that when we stand up for, you know, our values, we stand up for ourselves, we, you know, against uh, even pressure, we're like standing up for something and, and we're able to pave the way for, you know, for you and for your siblings to, um, you know, find their own voice and find their own kind of energy and, and, and be able to stand up. You, you encourage that kind of a voice. Were you able to stand up for yourself and stand up for what you believe in? And absolutely, you know, yeah, yeah, it cascades downward. You know, it's very generational. Yeah. Yep, yeah, very generational. Yeah, right. So now, when you stay in your lane, you know, it doesn't work. You know, yeah. And yeah. I, we didn't hit on some of your other maybe influences um, outside poetically. I mean, I get kind of a I, like a Seinfeld e vibe too when you're talking about kind of the mundane a little bit and finding kind of gold and just you know everyday experiences. Would love to see a, a poetry show in the vein of Seinfeld uh, down the line, and you <laughs> yeah. guys would be would be great for that. Um, but um, yeah, any other some other kind of influences that that I feel like I can't let a show go by without dropping Rakim's name. Ah, nice. Um, and the way it relates to what we were talking about, as far as being a stage poet, is he had the nerve, the wherewithal, uh, the awareness to go like very monotone with his delivery at a time where guys were more, you know, stage, stagey, like, uh, like a cool Modi or a Curtis blow or even run DMC. Mm-hmm. Right. There was a lot of up and down in their voice. And then he just comes out like thinking of a master plan, you know? So I, I think we're kind of in that school as far as we're going to say our shit, and we want you to do a little work, you know, because mm. we've craft. This is crafted, yeah. you know, and the words are crafted, the lines are crafted. Um, I think we're into that, having the listener do a little bit of work, you know. Yeah, listen to us. Also, it activates in the listener that process that you're doing yourself. It's not you doing all heavy lifting, but the, the the listener will then be activated and be able to carry on that work. So it's like you know, like you're doing the work, and you want them to be inspired to do the work on themselves and, and perpetuate that, as you are saying, it all flows together. So that then you're becoming like a inspiration for them to be like, Oh, now I'm going to go, you know, kind of activate that witness part, you know, of me and try to try to document it. You know what I mean? Like, in other words, like that's kind of what you hope. I think that when I'm getting the sense of poetry really does really the function of poetry is to, you know, spark inspiration in the, in the meditative inspiration in the, in the reader. I think yeah. It, for me, it's it's trying to uh, inspire people to see the world a little more poetically, right? We don't all have to be poets. We don't all have to be writers. But I think if you can just see a little magic 
mm-hmm. which is what poetry is for me, right? In the mundane, whether you're hiking, whether you're at a diner. Yeah. I think that really goes a long way in just like making life more livable and happier yeah. for a lot of people. Um, I think a lot of people don't know how to see that anymore. They don't see anything special in, in moments that aren't, you know, their vacation on the beach. Yeah, it's interesting Scott brought up Seinfeld. I always felt like Seinfeld was like the, the pinnacle of cynicism, like that, uh, you know, the, that the uh, the flow of comedy became like cynical and like, oh, nothing really means anything, but I'm just going to make a joke out of it. Kind of nihilistic almost. I don't know. Like that's, that's the reading I took of it. Even though I enjoyed it, I enjoyed it. But I always felt there was kind of a, there was kind of a push between, you know, like, you know, then you see shows like, um, it's always sunny in Philadelphia where they're like really like pushing the envelope and, you know, and all this kind of thing about with cynicism and with anti romanticism almost it feels like, you know, it just feels like there's not that the, in comedy today and also in, in generally in the culture today seems like they're just like trying to make light out of, you know, which is good. It has its place, but you know, we're trying to also dig a little deeper than just the quick laugh or the quick you know, quick thing, you know, I mean, it's good to find the joy rather than just a, a superficial uh, schadenfreude, I think it's called, when you have like, you're like making fun of people, other people's suffering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I don't know. What do you think about that? And uh, I think the overarching theme that you're talking about is just paying attention. Yeah. And I feel like Seinfeld pays attention, right? Exactly. Right. Poets are supposed to be paying attention. Yeah. And then whatever your lens happens to be, mm. you know, Seinfeld might be a little more urban, so there's yeah. like that cynical edge, but, you know, our stuff happens... Uh, outside of the city, usually. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that active listening, so so important. And and tying it back a little into hip-hop, I, I remember yeah, Saul Williams mentioning, too, where there was a period, you know, I guess during the bling era, too, where, you know, they were talking just, just money cash hoes and everybody bobbing their heads and nodding in affirmation without actually listening to what they were affirming. Uh, and, and with a more monotone delivery sometimes, you know, yeah, you are engaged with what is hearing. You're, you're judging for yourself. Do I agree with this? Do I not agree with this? And, you know, you're, you're paying attention through, through the whole way through. Mm. So I just want to remind listeners, this has been the truth. This is the Truth to Power show on Radio for Brooklyn. Radio for Brooklyn is sponsored in part by My Choice Pharmacy, including little or no cost medical braces, for more information, please available is available. More information is available at 844-598-6639. Uh, so, uh, also, uh, Ready for Brooklyn is, uh, uh, listener sponsor radio. So, of course, thinking of community, we hope that you'll consider, uh, giving a donation to Ready for Brooklyn and helping us stay on the air. Uh, you can give donations at monthly pledge or one-time donation at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. There you find some great t-shirts, mugs, and other swag that we'd like to send you to say thanks. You can also use your phone to text RFB123 to 44321. It takes only a moment, and you'll be able to use a digital off your donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, you can go to Amazon.com slash smile and register Ready for Brooklyn as a nonprofit to support. When you do, if presented your sales, will go to RFB and it'll cost you nothing. No donation is too big or small. Whatever you can afford, it'll make a huge difference. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts, and we wish all the listeners health and happiness. Uh, and also, if you're listening to Ready for Brooklyn um, on your computer, Please consider downloading our free mobile app to iPhone or Android, available on the App Store for iPhone and Google Play Store for Android. Uh, be sure to mu- subscribe to our monthly newsletter for latest news about new programming, upcoming RFB events. You can find out about all the different shows that are airing on Radio for Brooklyn, and you can sign up at radioforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Uh, there's always some new show coming up, uh, so you can always find out more about that. So, um, yeah, yeah, so the, thinking about, now returning to our conversation, we still have about like eight more minutes or so, so we can just talk a little bit about uh, what the future holds and what are you what are you starting to investigate now? Are you continuing the themes, or are you doing what is what is the kind of your trajectory 
in your uh, poetry or, or just in general, what that brings up for you, like where you're headed uh, professionally or, or personally, you know, what are your goals? What are your kind of plans? We have talked about um, doing a long road trip. Uh, I did a long road trip with my brother about 15 years ago and we did it really quickly. We did it in like three weeks. We did like 8,500 miles in, in three weeks. So I did not have time to write, but I would love to do that at a slower pace and maybe with Tristan. We had a little thing planned where we were going to go to Austin and then drive to New Orleans. Um, yeah, I think just uh, more settings. And I'd like to just try to um, do more like hybrid stuff where, mm. you know, maybe like a non-rhyming rap kind of thing with like musical background uh you know a rap with uh, you know i also like when things happen so organically that i could be writing a rhyming rap and then all of a sudden a free verse happens you know mm. like that stuff's cool nice. I think also one one idea that we've talked about is is expanding the collaboration to to other people. Mm. Uh, I don't necessarily mean Rich and I collaborating with other people, but a mass of people collaborating maybe on one poem. Mm. Uh, we've had ideas like that, little projects that we we want to try to get going, um, just to get people more engaged with poetry or just being creative or or you know just connecting with each other in a new way. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'd love to see like a really public works project in poetry where right. you go out to the community and get them engaged in poetry and, and show them that, show the community for those, especially those who may not hold it in high esteem, that there's something there that, that they can gain something from. Right. Yeah. Or, or these poetic hikes, open, yeah. open hikes or something yeah. would be. We talked be about that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's yeah. fantastic. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah to, to combine, to combine those, those two as much as you can. There's so much to it that people just don't. I think people, you know, public just doesn't appreciate it. They're kind of so used to this kind of self-indulgent uh, poetry or whatever it is, or at least in contemporary poetry, they kind of, I hear the theme when I talk to people about poetry that they think it's, it's self-indulgent, whereas, you know, we're kind of like, just like meditation is like about opening up your heart rather than self-indulging into little little nuances of, of life, you know, just griping or something like that. That's not what it's about, you know. And, right, and right. I think a lot of people have that misperception, you know. Yeah, I think nowadays it's people. Most people uh, will either think poetry is either too academic, self-indulgent, or whether it's just something that they can't understand, something yeah. that's that's you know over their head, or it's these little sort of micro Instagram poetry yeah. things that, in my opinion, don't really say a whole lot, yeah. um, or don't mean a whole lot. So um, I think yeah that's a problem and i think maybe what we are is the in-between mm. there something more accessible to, to everyone great yeah yeah i mean this has been a wonderfully enjoyable conversation yeah uh i i'd love to hear another uh work from each of you if, if we could um and uh sure. yeah any anything that you'd like to to kind of share well, we, we've talked a lot about nature so i'm thinking maybe we read a nature pair yes. rich yeah yeah, yeah. film the, the beach poems Okay. You want to do the beach ones? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, this is called Chincoteague Beach. We go to the sea because it is the sea. And we are from hard consonants, concrete Kerouacs, in the mid-January mist of Chincoteague. Now our backs are on the beach. I close my eyes and see the blonde marsh grass that stood on both sides of us, 
as we walked the path to the water. I open my eyes to see what the path has given us, the width and sound of it. The languages of waves, not talking over or with one another, just announcing themselves, over and over, over and over. I concentrate on one wave as it crawls to the shore and dies a beautiful death in a beautiful language that not even the shore understands. All right, same beach. Where did we go? I disappear into January mist, dissolve into waves, cool milk. For a minute or two, I am fluid with the elements. Matter quits, mattering. Salt exists only as dream. The sun does incredible things when people are not around. Turns every blue into gold, every subatomic something bright enough to believe. We came from this sea, crawled out, fins flapping, and proceeded to build walls, write a Bible. Where did we go wrong? I go back, trace our sanctity in the rules of tide, the endless washing away, our only religion. Thank you. Yeah, it seems like uh, some metaphors or some uh, kind of experiences that they can, you can never get the, re- the end of it. You know, it's like with the ocean and, and the waves, it's like it's a, there's a reality there and that we're seeing that we're just, we're, we're not able to understand the depth of that, of that reality, you know, both literally and figuratively. It's like there's so much there and, you know, we're just, we're just at the cusp of the exploration and we just can, we can only just begin to like the wave does not, the speech doesn't understand was a great line because it's like, that's exactly what I think my perception as well is that there's something unfathomable about the, um, the, the vastness of, of the universe and uh, of the ocean of even just something micro like that, like it compared to the universe is just so like, we're just little, little dust particles mm-hmm. compared to grains the, of sand. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much. We have like a minute left. So if you have any final thoughts, yeah, uh, a little bit where where we can uh, where other people can maybe check out this book, or if you have any other maybe readings coming up, some other some other things. Yeah. Uh, well, this is on Etsy. Um, like Tristan said, we're not huge on marketing our stuff, um, but we are definitely going to do something on a grander scale. So, as he mentioned, uh, we'd love to do something where like a neighborhood hub would be uh, like a common ground, like a library you know, and have a book and people just come in and add a line to a big, long-form poem. We, we thought mm-hmm. that would be really cool. Yeah. Uh, if you are interested in the book, like Rich said, you could just Google Etsy, the languages of waves. It should come up. If you Google either of our names, you might find, well, at least my name, you'll find a couple publications online. Um, and we'd love to have you guys follow us on Instagram if you're interested at the pre-Cartesian or at uh, rich.alexandro and uh yeah we we really just look forward to to connecting any way we can wonderful so thank you uh, uh rich and tristan this was, this was a pleasure to, to hear from you and, thank you guys uh, so much thank you thank you so much